Hello and a very warm welcome to our sunny Garden Organic podcast with me, Fiona Taylor, and my colleague, Chris Collins. It's August and this time we're doing an allotment special. I confess to never having much success as an allotment holder. I've tried it twice, but on both occasions I needed far more time than I actually had and so I failed to get it up and running. I look forward to having another go, perhaps after my children have left home. For those who can put in the time, it's richly rewarded with an instant community of fellow growers and much sharing of seeds, harvests and expertise. Chris is a keen allotment holder and in a minute we'll be hearing how his summer growing is going. If you listened last time, you'll remember he was banking on it being a hot one for all of his outdoor tomatoes. I think he might have been in luck. And later on, we'll be answering some allotment-related questions with Dr Anton Rosenfeld. Our special guest is garden blogger and Gardener's World contributor, Rekka Mystery, a devoted allotmenteer, who's also one of Garden Organic's volunteer seed guardians, helping to conserve rare vegetables in our heritage seed library. Rekka has held her allotment now for 12 years, and she's full of practical advice and tips about what's worked on her plot. But before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Organic Gardening Catalogue. Why not check out their amazing range of organic plants and seeds? Last year I got some super artichokes from them and I've had a terrific harvest. If you're a member of Garden Organic, you'll get 10% off. And as a podcast listener, you can get free delivery if you visit organiccatalogue.com forward slash POD5. But hurry, as the offer only lasts for a limited time. And now I'm off to have a good old natter with Chris in the potting shed. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm very well, Fiona. How are you? You enjoy the sunshine? Well, I am, yes. And I think you're sitting there looking a bit smug. I mean, last <laughs> time we talked about you were taking this great big risk. You're going to put all your Mediterranean veg out. And we were all thinking, oh, you know, <laughs> you were banking on a hot summer. So it sounds like you've got away with it. Well, at the moment, yeah, at the moment, definitely. I, I must admit, my plant's looking all right. I'm getting a tan down there as well. But yes, yeah, so it's interesting how there's kind of two things going on, all the sort of dry climate crops I talked about, melons and chilies and peppers and stuff, all seem to be cracking on. Um, my brassicas and my runner beans, not so much. So maybe if it stays warm and dry, that'll be the bulk of my crop this year. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, the runner beans, you used to think they were indestructible, but they, they don't like it hot, do they? I think they just need moisture, Fiona. They like their feet wet. That's a good way to describe runner beans. They don't like dry soil. And I think that um, I wasn't around a lot during the spring because of work. And I think that they just haven't had that start they normally have. So they're slower. I'm, I am cropping beans often. But normally I'm looking at my neighbours going, do you want any beans? And I'm not doing that at the moment. So I'm looking at them going, do you want any courgettes, by the way? Yeah, I was going to say, what are you picking? What are oh, you picking? Courgettes is just ridiculous. I'm thinking up various ways to... Uh, to stuff courgettes, basically. <laughs> we'll, be, we'll be sick of them soon, but they're courgettes. Oh, no, I love them. Do you? Oh, I'll bring them. you some. I'll bring you some next time at Ryan. But they're just one of them plants that don't bat an eyelid at the dry conditions. And you said you, your aubergines are doing well. So I've got aubergines half the size of, of me, basically, up to my waist. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. And they're, and they're all in flower. And in a little way, it's quite interesting because I saw wild aubergine. I was in Laos a couple of years ago and get wild aubergine there. They like it baked hot weather. But they also, when they come into flower, my advice is to make sure they get a bit of a drink so you don't get flower drop. I do think it is really startling to hear that we're doing so well with these crops outdoors. I mean, really, you know, when you think about it, it's quite staggering. We'll be hearing a bit later on from Rekka Mystery, who grows aubergines and chilies in a greenhouse and, and does really, really well, makes the greenhouse really humid. Do you have to do extra watering to, to create those humid conditions outside? I think definitely mulching helps. I do quite a lot of mulching and also going down there watering early in the morning. But I think once they're kind of up and they're established, you can back off a little bit. They're kind of away. It was just when they're young. I'm kind of experimenting a bit on doing this on a bigger scale. But they're all outdoors. Mulch them all. I do water them when I'm about. And they've established and they're now starting to look like big, decent plants. I'll come back to you when I get lots of crop off them. But they seem to be on the road to it, definitely. Well, I'm, of course as usual, a bit later than you with things like this. And my tomato plants have all done absolutely brilliantly in in the greenhouse. Um, I've been growing them all in pots. I've actually got 
far too many of them, but I can't bear to part with any of them. So I was wondering about bringing those outside. Now, I have never grown tomatoes outside. Have you got any advice? Well, I grow all mine outside, Fiona, all of them, to be honest with you. And I've got lots. I've got my hanging baskets on the balcony. I've got them on the allotment. Certainly, don't be afraid to plant them outside, especially if you've got gaps. Because this is the kind of time of year where stuff's finishing. My potatoes have all finished. I'm raising them. So I've suddenly now got these big open spaces, these gaps in the planting so I wouldn't be afraid of that at all. I would definitely plant them out. Um, and they were, and, you know, if the weather stays like this, you will get tomatoes. I just need to have some faith. I've got lots of leaf and, and nice, strong stems. And, and obviously, because they've all been grown in pots, they're reasonably straightforward to just transfer into yes. the ground. So are I'll they flowering? Are they got, you've got flowering? Yeah, not quite. Uh, it's not interesting quite. with the flowering. A lot of gardens would say if you wait till they flower and then plant them out, you get much more tomato rather than more foliage growth. That's quite a tip. So they should be popping out their flowers fairly quickly if they're decent sized plants as soon as you see those little yellow flowers fill those gaps i will have you got gap yourself i have i have i've got a, i'm a big being a sunday dinner man i'm a massive lover of turnips swedes and i would plant i always plant them very late in the season which means probably i might not get a crop of them this year but they'll be up and I, if i have to overwinter them i will so i would definitely advise those two also don't forget you can still do cut and come again salads Rockets, spinach, all those kind of quick crops. Mizuma, a lot of the sort of mustards, all of those things will still go in now. The problem we've got at the moment is it's so dry and it's been so hot. So attention to irrigation, if you sow now, is really, really important. And what about green manure plants? It's often something that we, we, we forget about. I know we talk about it a lot on the podcast, but actually to give us all a bit of a nudge, if you were going to be putting some green manure in now, what would you be sowing? I would be sowing definitely mustard. So all, all field bean. I'm seeing Anton will give you a bigger array of these than I will. I keep it quite simple. Mustard is because it comes up and you can sow it very thick. You can broadcast it very thick. I mean, it's the perfect gap filler to remember how much benefit that has to the soil. So mustard would be my first choice, definitely. We just touched a bit on watering. And I think the key at the moment has been just to do do something every day. Um, what sort of a difference do you think it makes? Because quite often, you know, you just think, oh, I, I can't do it today. I did it yesterday. It'll be all right. You know, is, yeah. it, is it safe to leave it? it, it um, um, if you're in containers, no. My, my advice for watering is when stuff's young, when it's small, you have to water it. You just do. And I think that if you don't, I was away a lot through uh, April, May and June working. So I wasn't there every day uh, watering the allotment. So, so I just find that the growth rate is slower. The plants are smaller. They just haven't progressed as much as I'd like them to do because it's been incredibly dry in London. The rest of the country might have found it different. It'd be interesting to see anybody out there who's living in Scotland or the North come and speak to us how you've got on. But I've definitely found that because it's been really dry in London, the, the lack of irrigation affects how the plants grow. So I just think at young stage, irrigation is vital. My balcony looks incredible because I can do that every day. I, I can, or well, I have to tell a lie there, Fiona. I can say to my good lady, can you water the balcony? I'm taking far too much credit there. It is. It's about looking after our young plants, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's actually, I think you've raised this beautiful plant from seed and you put it in the ground and you, there is an element of thinking, right, OK, off yeah. you go. But actually, you've still got to get them up to a, a you know reasonable level of growth, give them an opportunity to get their roots properly down. You can't, you can't take your eye off the ball. at that early yeah. stage. Yeah. Yeah. And also, especially if you've moved it, because what you've done and you've moved it, it's a bit like when we move house, we're kind of checked for a little while, aren't we? It's new environment. Plants are no different. So if I, I'll give you an example. I've got some lovely pumpkins coming on the allotment. When I move them, they kind of sit for three weeks, don't go, oh, I'm not going to grow. So I have to water and mulch them. Now they've really taken off. I don't need to water them so much because their roots are down. They've got the roots down. They can go and hunt the water, hunt the nutrients, and they tend to then prosper. But those early days are very, very essential. And I suppose, again, going back to this element of bare soil, that's just going to continue to dry things out. And the more plants we can have together, the, the more humidity we're creating at that, at that lower level. It's, surely it's got to be better. Absolutely. I think tear planting is the key to all organic gardening. I, I, you know, I've said before, I don't like to see empty soil. You know, if you've got runner beans, underplant with ground beans or French beans, use that soil up. Make sure if you drill sowing with, with fast crops like salads and rocket weather, so you've got stuff moving all the time as you crop it. Less weeding, less watering. It's just that making sure plants are in association definitely works. 
But just going back to watering, Chris, because it really has been extraordinary. I mean, these temperatures that we saw at the end of last month were just, I mean, mind boggling, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. Very and, unusual. and you almost think when it's that hot, should we be watering more? Should we be watering less? And then and then you think start to think, well, where's all this water going to come from? And, mm. you know, it, it's a really tricky balance, isn't it? Well, I think that there is not a surplus of water. There just isn't. So my water butt hasn't had any water in it for a while. So there's kind of two ways to look at it, really. Try to save any water you can. So water butt or dishes or, like, for example, the other night, for suddenly it poured for 10 minutes, a localised shower. Capture all the water you can. If you've got more mature stuff, talking about trees and maybe shrubs and stuff, you can use grey water. But the rule is, if it rains, catch it. And then you're not taking it out of the mains, etc. So, of course... Well, we're on the W's. We've been talking about watering and, um, of course, weeding. I just want to let you know, Chris, that you gave me some advice about uh, get out early in the morning, get on with it. I have been out every morning and I've made myself do 10 minutes of pulling up my bindweed. You know, of course, I can't get rid of it. But now I feel so much more excited because <laughs> I feel I'm on top of it. Yeah, yeah. You, see, you don't get rid of it. You just massively irritate it. And that's good enough in my book. Because it just doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't like, if you look at bindweed and most pernicious weeds, bindweed's a good one. Because if you look, if you're in a railway station and you look at the fencing around it, you usually see bindweed. The reason is it's left alone. It's got, you know, it's left in, in peace. But I think also when you're weeding and watering, you're kind of looking at the plants you want to grow. They're bonding exercises. So you're kind of depleting the, the, the plants you don't want there and you're encouraging the plants you do want there. But in between, you're kind of, you're gardening, you're, you're, you're bonding with your plants. It's a good way to start the day, it really is. This is the interesting thing, isn't it, about allotments? Because I think a lot of us think, oh, yes, I'll, I'll you know, I'll get an allotment. It's going to be fantastic. Everything's going to look marvellous. It's going to be really straightforward. Now I'm just going to start my cropping. It's going yeah. to be marvellous. And actually, the reality is that you're given a rectangle of land that is very often full of problems. Of course it is. And that's what, you know, a gardener's job is is, uh, is to win the battles. You'll never win the war, ultimately. And um, I think it's misrepresented through the media, through the television. I think you, we paint this, uh, we do it with everything, not just gardening. We have this idyllic vision in our, on our, in our minds. But is it like that? Be prepared to do the battle. Be prepared to go in there and get it working and find out. Every piece of land, every garden is different. It'll have different problems. And the longer you stay on it, the more you discover that, the more satisfying gardening is. Don't go in thinking it's a black canvas. It just never is. Go in, wait a year, see what's growing, see what's going to cause you problems, see what the solutions are. Just bond with that bit of land and see how you can move it forward. It's a long game, isn't it? Exactly. The point is don't get frustrated about it. And really, to my point of view, that kind of finding out and then growing stuff, that is what gardening's about. You you go on that journey. It's, there's nothing instant about it. And if you think there is, you're in the wrong game. How long have you been at your allotment now, Chris? And what do you think you've got to after, after that length of time? Well, <laughs> I, I took it over six years ago, five years ago. So it was the back end of the site. No one had bothered with it for about seven years. There's a big horsetail problem. I don't talk about that much, do I? But there's a big tall problem. <laughs> I think we know and, that. Uh, <laughs> exactly. But, but it, I think it's probably just one plant that's been allowed to spread. So it's been a massive, massive challenge and still is. But it, when I crop off, off it, I feel the satisfaction levels are really massive because I've been in this in this battle with it, if you like. And that, that's the way I like it to be. And I don't think that will stop for a while, but it's a bit better than it was when I started. But I'm still pulling a lot of pernicious weed. And I think you've told me before it's quite exposed. Is that right? Well, it's a very hot area. So there's no trees around it. It backs on the houses. So certainly in terms of watering, it needs watering a lot. But it, like I say, there's ways of, of it bringing it round. I do know this, right? If I didn't go there for two months, it would revert. That's what I know. So I need to be working it all the time. I just need to be working it. Chris, tell me, in, in your years of allotmenteering, what would you say is the number one most important thing about running a successful allotment? Well, I think, yeah, time is the key ingredient. I would love three, four times the amount of time I, I would to be down there doing what I do, but it is about time. But if you haven't got all that time, then then adapt to it. Share it with someone. Get two or three people involved. Just use a little bit of tactics, but don't go into it thinking that you could just do it you know, two hours a week because it doesn't work that way. Edibles are quite intense crops, so come up with a plan, but make sure 
you do give it the time and love it deserves is really how I view it. And and it will reward you, won't it? They just there's nothing, nothing like fresh organic food off the plant onto your plate. They're just nothing beats it. And I I defy anyone to defy me when I make that statement because it it is just so worth the effort. I must admit, I'm really looking forward. I've got globe artichokes absolutely ready to pick. And and my problem is, and, and I think this is probably something other, other people share, is that I get so much pressure out of growing that I almost don't want to harvest it. Oh, I know, I know exactly. Because I've got, I get the allotment perfect. And I'm like, I just say like that. <laughs> you know, I mean, you got to get that. It's funny, in my hardy annuals, I've got so much colour on there at the moment. But because of the heat, uh, the nasturtiums are all burning out. And I've had these lots of swarms of beautiful reds and yellows. I've had loads of poppy down there. It's been incredible this year. Because those plants don't mind it dry, but they're burning out. And I'm like, don't leave me now. <laughs> it's one of them. The beans, and my French beans, I've cropped them. And you can see them going, right, that's me for the year. <laughs> it's one of those. That you just want it to keep rolling. But there we go. Back to where we started into so putting green manures just keep active keep it going i'm really mindful of that incredible burst of heat that we had just recently and and the the intensity of it and and how that must have felt for the plants and and the effect that has had on on gardens can, can you just explain what may have happened well i think what happens fiona is if if they're exposed to that kind of extreme heat or extreme conditions their natural reaction is i need to set seed so if you have rocket, I've got rocket and perpetual spinach. I love perpetual spinach, one of my favourite crops. But its attitude to back on a heat or extreme conditions is, I need to set seed. So don't be worried if they suddenly send up flowers and they bolt and then they start to perish. Just re-sow. It's a natural reaction for a plant to want to set seed if, it, if conditions are extreme. I just collect all those dried seed heads. They go into the shed. I let them dry. And I'll sign them again next year. I think that's one of the great positives of this situation, because one of the things that I found was I was really, really proud of my peas this year. I had the most beautiful crop and I, I was looking forward to that kind of way with peas where they just slowly finish, mm. you know, and actually it was almost overnight. Yeah, it does. It's so instant, Fiona. They go, right, that's me. I'm done for this season. I'll get rid of my seeds and that's me for next year. We get things kind of perfect and we like it to stay that way. But that's not the game we're in, is it, really? It's a life cycle of the plant's own, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So we sow again and we go again. Simple as that. Now, back in 2015, Wrecker Mystery took part in the Big Allotment Challenge on BBC Two. And since then, she's become a well-known writer and blogger with her vibrant pictures and videos on Instagram and Facebook, now she appears on Gardener's World, broadcasting from her plot in northwest London. It's a beautiful, organic growing space, packed full of vegetables, fruit and flowers. She's got two greenhouses, one for drying herbs and seeds, and another humid one for growing chilies and aubergines. We began our chat in the dry greenhouse. A lot of people will know me as a blogger to begin with, and... It all life started on Facebook, but now I'm a garden writer. I'm a gardener as a profession, and that that's that's what you'll always see me do is write about gardening. And we're really here in your office, aren't we? Yes, you are in my office. You're in my pastime. It this is this is my world. And so um, we're going to have a wonderful tour of the allotment um, in a minute, but perhaps you could give me an idea um, of how much time you've spend in a year in this wonderful greenhouse uh this greenhouse really gets going in spring spring this this is where i live in spring it's where i do all my sewing and my potting on and then again in the autumn when everything comes in and the harvest has to be looked after and that that that's when this greenhouse comes alive is the two times in the season right now it's on a lull because it's very hot it's you can't even stand here really but we're standing here and that th- this is just kind of a, a hub that where life starts for my allotment. And I imagine it's also very useful for seed saving. Yes, I tend to bring any drying seeds into here and allow it to dry completely because they're not always dry when you see them outside. They still got a bit of moisture. So this, this becomes their, their um, kitchen. And this is where I will always stand and look after my seeds. 
So a bit of winnowing goes on in here, a bit of sorting. Yes, a bit of winnowing. You can see all the sieves are around. They're always handy. They're always ready for me to do whatever I need to do. There's, there's pots and cups and everything. And it's very, it's very, um, it's not, how can I say, it's not very commercial. And that's how I like it. I like it just to be simple, saving for myself and anyone who, else, who wants the seeds, I will swap with them. So it's, it's, it's not, it's not a, commercial industry but it's it's something I like to do with other gardeners. Now once you walk into here you will just suddenly feel the humidity rise. It's not just temperature you've got the humidity because what I tend to do is every morning throw a big bucket of water just to get just to get them going again as if they were back in a tropical country. It feels incredibly tropical in here. I mean it, it, it really does. It 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 doesn't feel unpleasantly humid at all. It feels actually refreshingly humid. Yeah. And there's no sense of the humidity sort of causing nasty moulds or, or anything like that. It feels like a very um, pleasant and controlled environment, actually. Yes, it is, because I tend to keep the vents open, the doors open. So you need, you need, you need some airflow. If you don't have airflow, then that humidity is going to bring in other pests. But this way, it's always about... The condition is always look out for the conditions that you need to have in, in a greenhouse. So I'm just going to describe the surroundings a bit. We've got um, um, a paved floor, so mm -hmm. there's no um, planting into soil in here. Every single thing in here is in a pot. Most of them are in terracotta pots, which I think you told me earlier that you'd built those up over time. Yes. Um, large terracotta pots. Um, what sort of inch across would you say the majority of them are? Okay, so we've got two sizes here. We've got 10 litre size and just one which is over 10, I'd say between 13 and 15. It's all, whatever I can find, I tend to pick up, but I always try and get them at a bargain price. I do not like to pay the full price. And do you find that growing in terracotta is generally better than, than plastic? I have found that. I tried with a few terracottas and majority were all plastic. And then slowly as I change from plastic to terracotta, I notice that they do do better. It, it takes them a while to get going in spring, but, but that's because of the condition. It's, it's quite cool then, whereas the ones that are in the plastic pots will do much better. But then come this time of the year, nice and summer, you can, you can see that the ones that are in the plastic pots aren't doing as well as the ones which are in the terracotta because everything is the same. It's just that is the only thing that's different about them. I can definitely see that. I mean, we're talking, you know, sort of a third, third. of the size, I would say, of the, the chilies um, that I'm looking at um, compared to the ones in, in terracotta pots. And yet the pots are the same size, actually. Yes. So between the plastic and the terracotta, that is that is very, very interesting. And I know we're all, you know, very keen to, to recycle any pots we've got, Um but it does go to show that actually in terms of yield, yes. you're actually going to do better out you, of a terracotta pot. I think you will get a better better crop. They they hold the moisture well. They breathe as well, the terracotta pots. So you get you get the roots working as well as the tops working. Whereas with the plastic pot, it's just the top that's working and the root is finding it hard to work. It's mainly chilies in here on the left and then on the right, it's your wonderful aubergines. Yes. Um, so I can see maybe eight or nine pots, large pots of aubergines that the aubergine plants themselves actually come up to about 50 centimetres at, at the most, I would say. They're mm -hmm. not, not huge, are they? Um, will they get much taller? They'll get, they'll get a little bit taller, just a little bit more, maybe about 70 centimetres. I don't try and keep them too big. At some point, I will cut them like you do to tomatoes when you have a cutoff point of their growth and just let the fruit that is on there grow until say October time it's you've got great promise here because I can see an awful lot of really really beautiful deep purple flowers um and yeah and and the beginnings of some fruit forming um you also in here have um uh three really three or four really striking pots of of marigolds what why have you got Got, got those in here. Marigolds work as companion plants, not just inviting bees, but also for pest control. I find if I have marigolds in here... Just to say a bee has arrived, as you can, might be yes, able to hear. And it's, um, and it's enjoying the pepper it's plants. It's having a wonderful go in the pepper plants. 
Yeah. <laughs> amazing noise. Yes, amazing noise. Um, yes, he's not trapped. He's having a lovely time, yeah. I can tell you. Um, yes, yeah, sorry. The, so we're, we're going back to the, the marigolds. The marigolds. Are can, here to bring the bees in. Are here to bring the bees and other pollinators in. But if you notice, I don't know if you can see, that they've had a little slug damage to them. But then nothing else has been damaged. Other plants are fine. Just the marigolds are being touched. So that it's a pest control that way as well. So they love that first before they go on to anything else. Okay, brilliant. So a bit of a sacrificial crop. Oh, yes. Yeah. Just walking down to the bottom of Rekka's plot, um, which is um, something of a sort of compost industrial area. Um, we're looking at uh, two wooden compost bins and then three plastic ones with lids um, and then I think there's possibly um, some more going on behind so so talk us through through the system here. Right what I started with is the two plastic bins and it wasn't enough for a size of this allotment you need a really big place to create your own compost to put it back and so when we look at different sites they show you how to make a compost bin the cheap way and so just using a few pallets my husband knocked up this compost bin for me this is actually the second one the first one is in a similar fashion but you recycle everything and that's the whole idea on an allotment you get ideas from each other set and they'll say oh you could have used this kind of wood and that would have worked even better so then you even fuss over the pallet size and the more I have the more I want and in fact even these four are not enough <laughs> um so do you do you sort of um work your way through them you know and and do they all sort of come to fruition at different times is there a system or is it not quite that organized I would love a, <laughs> I would love to be a compost queen but I'm not that that I will tell you this now but what happens is come autumn time I will turn I will turn them if I can turn every month I would do so but I just don't get the time to do it and that that's one thing that is key when it comes to composting is you have to keep turning to get it ready well it doesn't just stop here of course on the composting because round the corner I'm going past a pile of logs are they are they um aesthetic or what? no, no the, the logs are not aesthetic nothing here is to do with the look of the place it's it has a purpose my plot floods and I don't know if you if you see what I've done on this side is a raised section of the logs it is just to hold the soil in because when it rains here in the in the winter the soil just runs. And even though I do green manure on the plot to keep the soil where it is, it still manages to run. And so all these logs will be for another bed. Come, come autumn, I will sort of shore it all up and sow the green manure. And it's actually worked last time. So I said to my husband, I think we need to keep them. We can't get rid of these. So they're staying here. And I think there'll, there'll be some insects and whatever running around in there, which is good. It's a little hibernation space for them as well. I'm going to describe those sort of raised beds that you, you've just been talking about. So so they are logs, a couple of sort of logs laid on top of each other and they form a rectangle and then they're sort of held in with, with, with smaller um, branches that yeah. kind of work as pegs, if Pegs, you like. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's, it's giving a channel down the whole of the side of the allotment, I guess, for the, 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 port, the water, water to, to run, run into. Yes. Um, I mean, I, can you describe what, you know, how much flooding you get and, and, you know, how much would just sit on the, the land if you hadn't, if you hadn't done this? Uh, I think if you look at the channel, this is about, about 30 centimeters. Uh, my path is raised 30 centimeters. So it's about 30 centimeters of water would be sitting on this lower end of the plot. Good grief. So I, so when you come in the winter, you'll think, how can you grow on this land? But this, this is what we have to work towards. It's, it's not a perfect plot, but you make it as perfect as you can. So you've lifted your gardening out of the water. I mean, I'm looking, interestingly, <laughs> at a herb bed, which, of course, traditionally, you would expect that to be um, you know, a really dry, arid bed to, to get all those sorts of herbs to flourish. And they're all doing fine, thanks very much. And that's presumably just because you've raised them up a little bit. That's, that's correct. It's, it's, it was all about trying to figure out how can I raise it without having to bring in soil. I did not want to be, I want to be sustainable as much as possible on my own. It's, it's taken me 12 years to be at this position, but it's not about instant gardening. It is about careful gardening and learning as you go through the process. And so that's why I thought, you know, there is logs and wood chip 
delivered on the allotment. Why don't I use those and make a raised bed? And planted next to it um, is some very healthy looking rhubarb, but also, more importantly, perhaps, um, tell me where, what else is down um, here. That, that, that is the, the, the key to my fertilizer. That's comfrey. It's, it's what, something I made sure I had the minute I got an allotment because that is, that is the feeder of this plot. And with, with the comfrey and the seaweed, that's why you see the plot the way it is. And so I will describe how the plot is. It is absolutely bursting with produce. Um, I can see, you know, peas. I can see beans. I can see squash. I can see sweet corn. I can see sunflowers. I can see uh, perennial kales. Um, I can also see a lovely little cottage garden bed down the end, actually. You've got this beautiful, um, uh, again, raised with logs round it, but, but not raised up very high, just, just high enough. That's all that was needed. And, and it seems to me to be stuffed full of, of rather wonderful cottage plants. Yes, it's just a little trial I'm doing for a garden design that I'm trying to do for another garden. So I thought, let me try and see what it would look like by just adding uh, edibles and ornamentals together because that's what cottage garden is all about and that's that's the that's where I got this theme for the whole allotment is to have it with as much bursting produce but as much bursting floral color as well it really is incredibly colorful I can see beautiful yellow flomis I can see the purple verbena bonariensis uh, you know I can even see the beautiful kind of red of the of the red veined sorrel that's that's now turning uh, to seed um, so all these different colors and textures um, you know just just incredibly inspiring and, and looking up through the allotment you've got a central path and on either side of your path which is a wood chip path it's just flowers everywhere and bees everywhere yes I mean this is one thing I learned when I first took on the allotment I never had any flowers but marigolds that's all I grew and from from what I remember, with few lines of marigolds to what you see now with loads of sunflowers, loads of cosmos, every flower that I could think of, I wanted to add. any Anything I need to bring bees into this garden, I was going to try bringing it. And I will stuff whatever plants I need to stuff between these lines, get those bees in, because they are so crucial to pollinating the vegetable flowers. And it really is alive. I mean, there's, there's, there's bees, there's butterflies, there's flies. I've seen lots of ladybirds. Um, talk me through sort of pest control and, 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 and how you, how you manage that. Because this is, this is a very productive space. So you must have to have strategies in place to, to make sure that you get the crops that you're, you're hoping for. Yes. I mean, it's always about organic way. I have to think organically as to how can I have one and not the other. But, you also need the pest to bring, say, for instance, the ladybirds. The ladybirds like to eat the, the black fly. And you need to let them attack your beans for the ladybirds to arrive to them. And you, you can't just say, I need to get rid of the, the black fly. But then when it comes to slugs, they are going to be there. No matter what you do, they're going to be there. So I found out that you can use beer traps. Beer traps, they drink that. They're very, really merry. And then they die and and so that's that's fine by me because they've, they've gone in a happy way and that that's a, those, those are my two main pests that I really need to think about but anything else to say the the cabbage fly uh, cabbage white butterfly I net all my brassicas as much as possible and then I've even tried to have them around on the plot and see what happens to them and there are times they haven't even touched the brassica they've just passed them by but because they've been planted within the flowers I think there's too much going on so the butterfly doesn't see where they are and they just go by but with the brassica it they have to be netted because I've got pigeons as well to contend with and so brassicas are always covered. I mean we are you know really in the heart of the city here we've just had a plane go over a bit earlier on and I can hear the traffic noise in the background uh, so the pigeons are, are you know tend to come with that yes. um, that's for sure. Um, we um, can see from where we're standing um, all sorts of different crops, but I can also see some companion planting going on. Yes, the companion planting came about just the organic way. I had to find out what grows together 
and work together always. And it was always marigolds that people say you need to grow. But there are other things. For instance, you've got celery and celeriac. Dill grows really well with them, apparently so. So I am trying that out. The other one that grows well is calendula and leeks because the smell of calendula will deter the allium leek miner. And that is during the months of September to November. The calendula are still around. So once the allium leek miners go, so do the calendula. Come spring, calendula grow again. Leak miners come again. So you've got, you've got a bit of harmony clashing at the same time. Well, we're standing here by an absolutely gorgeous tomato. It is absolutely tiny. The tomatoes are bright red and they're probably the size of marbles, no bigger, but even small marbles, I would say. Um, Reco, just describe this exquisite plant to me. Uh, when I heard about this in the Heritage Seed Library, I, I got really interested. They're very tiny. Could they really be that tiny? Because cherry to me is a tiny tomato. But when I when I saw this coming through, flourishing from from the very small flower, I thought, wow, it's actually is a very small plant. But it's not a small plant. It's just the fruit is very small. But it's a really good bush variety. And the name is Texas Wild. It is definitely wild. I mean, you think of things go, growing to excess in, in Texas. You know, you think Texas is all about being bigger and better, better. and bolder. Yeah. And yet this is like the sort of the champion of, of the tiny, isn't it? It's They're like little pearls, little red pearls is how I would describe it. But they'll be like a Christmas tree at one point because there is so much flower, so much fruit going on, and they're all going to flourish at the same time. And I cannot wait to take a picture of this. And will you be saving the seed? I will definitely be saving the seeds. It, it's a really tasty little tomato and I can't wait to share any seeds if anyone's interested. <laughs> um, I think you'll be probably swamped. I certainly would like some, if that's okay. <laughs> yep, no problem. <laughs> Um, I mean, it's a heritage variety. That means it's been sort of brought into our heritage seed library in order to make sure it doesn't go extinct and, and doesn't sort of, you know, die out in effect. I mean, why do you think heritage veg is so important? I think that's the, that's the whole idea. We, do, we shouldn't lose hope in a vegetable. Some years we, it won't do well. And the idea we now have is if it doesn't do well, let's move on to the next crop. So you shouldn't have to lose a crop because it didn't do well one year. I think that the idea becomes that way. So it becomes heritage because you've decided to lose it at some point. Once we lose a seed, we've lost it. It's not going to come back. And that is so important that we do not lose our own heritage. We've got two climbing French beans I can see here. Um, the first one is pea bean. Um, that is a heritage seed library variety. Um, tell me what that's going to do. I I got really interested in what it was called, pea bean. Why is it called a pea bean? But when I grew it last year, it grew as a normal pea, the size of a pea. So you could harvest them, very young pods, and not eat it as a French bean, but as the pea itself. But then let it grow a bit more. And you will get the most wonderful pea-sized dried beans that you could save for the winter. And the name attracted me. is It's the start of it. Pea bean. It's two in one. I mean, you 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 say you leave them on so that so that when you harvest them, they're pretty dry already. When I har- what I'll do is from spring to midsummer, I will use as many fresh peas as I can, and then from mid-August onwards, I'll leave the rest of the top to grow but then once they've dried on the plant then you have to take them off and let them continue drying in the shed until all the moisture's come away and then you just put them in a glass jar and then you just winnow them check if there is any pest damage and then put them in the jar and the other climbing french bean that we are next to which has got its own personal um selection of marigolds planted in amongst the wigwam um we've got climbing french bean cypress here Again, the name attracted me. Why is it called Cypress? But I still haven't figured that, that one out. But it's the most wonderful French bean. It doesn't grow very big and it's really tender. And again, do these beans that come from abroad, because it's from Cyprus, will they do well in our country? And 
it's a heritage because it's it's died down. Why did it die down? Because it didn't do well at the time. But it is growing well in our conditions. Whatever the climate condition is now, it's still doing well. So sometimes we have to be patient. And sometimes, of course, with heritage varieties, it's it's a really key part of saving them because we don't know what our climate is going to do. And actually, we don't know what crops will succeed or fail in our gardens of the future. So having a library where we're constantly testing um, all these varieties um, of seed um, actually is, is really crucial. And having people like you, Rekha, who is a seed guardian for us, so that means that you will take a rare variety and you will grow it on and save the seed and send it back to us so that we can find out more about seeds and we can bulk up our supplies so that we can supply them to other people. And I think you're doing that with this final wigwam. This one has got a really good name. It's called Mother's Six Weeks, and I think it's to do with summer, but we we won't talk about summer holidays and children. But it, again, name attracted me, but the one thing that attracted me was it's, it's, it's a flat pole bean and that to me says it's like a runner bean it can be eaten like a runner bean they're so lovely and tender and they will work as a runner bean and now i found out that runner beans do not like heat and they don't do well in the heat whereas these pole beans do amazing in, in the heat so it's a great runner bean substitute so if you're having if you we're having hot weathers now hot summers and our runner bean this year is not of good quality. A lot of people are complaining that they haven't got bean plants. Whereas if you grow this as a substitute, you've still got the taste of a runner bean in your house. Mother's six weeks. And I can just describe the, the, the pod to you. I mean, it's a lovely long flat pod. It's about eight or nine inches long. It's completely straight down one side. And then it's got this beautiful sort of symmetrical wave down the other side. But it is totally flat. Yes. Yeah, so the beans the beans won't sort of, you know, bulk up at all. They will bulk up, but this is the whole idea that you eat them while they're tender and fresh as a runner bean and leave them to, to bulk up. And then you've still got a bean to eat in the winter. Brilliant. So it's a double crop. It's a double crop. So most French beans are double crops. And that's how we need to look at them as dwarf beans, maybe use them as um, a fresh tender bean, but anything that is a climbing variety... It is very good to save as a a winter crop as well. Well, now it's time for us to open the post bag and answer some of your questions. I'm here with Anton. Hello, Anton. Hi, Fiona. And I'm also here with Chris. Hi, Chris. Hi, Fiona. So the first one, I've recently been assigned two vegetable beds on the allotment site near where I live. It's very possible that the previous allotment here used herbicide on the beds. With this in mind, I don't wish to grow food until I feel it's safe to do so. What management practices would you recommend I adopt? And how long should I wait before growing fruit and vegetables? This is a difficult one, isn't it? Anton, why don't you go first on this? Yeah, this is well, this is a bit of a hotbed, really. I remember when I first went to agricultural college, I was told that the herbicide glyphosate, which is probably the one that they've most likely used, was as safe to eat as common table salt. That's certainly (laughs) something that I haven't tried in practice. But now, now sort of opinions have changed somewhat that possibly be questions over its, its safety towards human health. So glyphosate is actually, it's inactivated when it hits the soil. So it binds very tightly to the organic matter in in the soil. And so it becomes no longer active. Some say that it's it's sort of all gone after six months. Others say that it sort of sticks around for at least two years. I think we have to be pragmatic over this, really. You're never going to get a soil which is completely free of pollutants. We're, we're living with pollutants the whole whole time. So it's more a case of not whether we can detect whether it's still there, but whether we think it's at a sort of safe level or not. Personally, on a practical basis, what I would do is I would sow a green manure over the winter, something that's quite vigorous growing like um, vetch or um, grazing rye, which produces a lot of green matter. And that will help to sort of boost the organic matter levels in the soil. 
And after that overwinter period, I would be pretty happy to be growing veg in that. The, the glyphosate will be inactivated and amounts that those veg are going to take up is going to be really very, very small. I think we have to bear in mind that if every time that we eat a non-organic loaf of bread that those cereals have been sprayed with glyphosate before just before they've been harvested um i'd be much more worried about that that's really really interesting it just shows that there is um a pragmatic way of looking at this okay thanks ever so much for that i mean we've also got another question that's related to an allotment purple honey badger 13 on instagram has has written to us asking us where should they start with a completely overgrown plot? And also, they've also said, how can they source safe water when there's no on-site tap? Um, I mean, that's a real pair of problems there. Chris, where would you start, first of all, with a completely overgrown plot? Well, I mean, mine was seriously overgrown when I took it over. And my initial way of dealing with it was to basically put in a, a Mypex mulch, which is like a woven fibre that you put over the area and you pin down with, say, 10 pegs just to block out the light, and then I'd slip plant through that. So I'm blocking out the light and I'm not giving the opportunity for those weeds to regrow. If it's this time of year, don't worry about it so much. It's a bit too late to be worrying about it now. Get through to the autumn, let it all die down naturally, and then maybe apply a mulch. If you don't want to use a a plastic-based thing like Mypex, then you can use cardboard, a big, big, deep layer of compost with cardboard over the top. And the idea is, is you snuff out the light and let stop those weeds regenerating the following year. Now, pernicious weeds are a little bit more determined than that. So I think that if your time's short, maybe look at putting some raised beds on and maybe bringing in some topsoil. Then you can maybe allow the weeded areas to carry on growing, but you've still got some productive spaces so you can fill the allotment up with raised beds. I think maybe better if you, in terms of um, your obligations on an allotment, maybe let any weeds grow in corridors, in lines in between the raised beds, because otherwise they'll start saying you're not using the allotment properly. And that's good anyway for your pollinators if you have got strips of wild plants in between your raised beds, and that's good. The big point is, is don't be overwhelmed by it. Don't be overwhelmed by it. Don't try and do too much, but maybe leave it this year. Start to put those ideas into place so you're on top of it come the following growing season. Lots of good advice there, Chris. Anton, how should we deal with um, a situation where there's no on-site tap? Okay, I've had friends who've had allotments with no on-site tap, and I must admit they have struggled. So we need to set our expectations quite sort of realistically. I mean, you can collect water off a shed into water butts, but that water is not going to last you very long at all in in the summer. You know, you'll get through it in a few few days. So you have to really be realistic about the sort of things that you can plant there. Um, I would go for more sort of perennial veg, things which has got a deeper rooting system, things which are not going to sort of need really lots and lots of watering all the time. Otherwise, you are going to really, really struggle. Perhaps fruit bushes. Perhaps get together with your other allotment holders and try and think about how you can get a supply of water in as well, because I think it will make your life easier. Yeah, very much so. Join up with others and 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 solve a common problem. Okay, so moving on, we've had a question from Louise on Instagram, and she says, "Can you plant strawberry seeds or pepper seeds now, or is it too late?" Um, Chris. Well, I wouldn't be thinking about pepper seeds now. That's for sure. I think that's the sort of crop I would be sowing in March next spring early spring get them up and running quite early so no pepper seeds when it comes to strawberries well nobody really sows strawberries by seed but they are really good for a thing called runners and a runner is uh, almost like a parachute version of the plant so you get a thing called a stolon which is like like a stem and it shoots out from the main plant on the end of that you'll get a little strawberry plant you might have seen it with a house plant like a spider plant so it's like an offset of the of the parent plant Good idea if you want to do, uh, get strawberries going now is to crop that off, get a sharp knife, cut that stole on, take that little baby strawberry away, pot it up in a nice free-draining, peat-free compost, maybe sit it in a cold frame and let that grow on and plant that out next spring. Most strawberry plants benefit from that. They're very free and generous with their runners. So if you've got a friend who's got strawberries, dive along. You know what gardeners are like. We're very generous. We love giving stuff away. Go and get some runners off a parent strawberry plant. Okay, so that takes care of the strawberries. But actually, if you really are itching to start sowing some seeds at this time of year, where would you start, Anton? 
Well, I'd probably go for slightly more sort of quicker growing things. I particularly like sowing coriander at this time of year because I find if you sow it earlier in the season, it tends to bolt really quickly. But sow it in August, it'll keep going right the way into sort of November if if your um, winter isn't too cold. So that seems to work well. I always like to sow some spring onions. That's something that's sort of pretty quick. And I I don't know, it just makes salad more exciting. And then something else which is quite quick growing is fenugreek. That's that really really rockets up um you can just get a seed packet of seeds from an asian grocers um that they sell over the spice counter you've got enough to sow an area of a football pitch there and <laughs> it, it basically just comes up really quickly and it's something you can put in into your curries or into chapatis and things like that to give it that nice sort of slightly sort of curried bitter taste of things so that, that's a sort of added bonus you can grow Lovely. I, I love the sound of that. I'm definitely going to try that. And if you're wanting to get ahead on, on winter veg, Chris, what sort of seeds could we be sowing now? Uh, well, I'm actually going to, to do a curveball. I'm, you know, we, I'm, I love a bit of swede and turnip, and I will put them in quite late in the season as a drill-sown veg. But I'm also going to try for some Christmas potatoes. So all my potatoes kind of went over quite early this year. I don't know if it's because it's been dry in London. There's obviously been a bit of heat. So I've lifted a load of potatoes, but now I've got this kind of big space because potatoes tend to use up quite a lot of the allotment. So what I'm going to do is I've got some, some late potatoes and I'm going to put them in the ground to see if I can get them up and growing and maybe leave them in the ground and actually crop them for Christmas Day. So it's a little bit of an experiment. So anybody out there listening to us who are going to try this as well, Please join in and we'll see if we have any luck. That all sounds absolutely brilliant. Um, Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all we've got time for. I do hope you've enjoyed listening. I think we're all still reeling from the very hot weather a couple of weeks back and it would be interesting to hear how that's affected your garden. Plants and seeds are already adapting to the changing weather conditions we're witnessing but as we all know, they're much quicker to respond to their environment than we humans are. Do let us know if you've any particular observations you'd like to share. I hope you've picked up some useful advice. I was inspired by Rekka's success with aubergines in a humid greenhouse, using terracotta pots and keeping some marigolds on hand to bring in the pollinators. Chris, on the other hand, managed to grow aubergines outside this year. Both said to me that they sowed their seeds early and indoors, but were careful to keep the heat and light conditions consistent during those early spring months. When it comes to allotments, the number one piece of advice is to make sure you've got enough time. But I'd suggest the second most important thing is making sure you've got plenty of flowers to ensure as much biodiversity as possible. And, of course, ensuring you tend your plot the organic way. If you want to learn anything more about the topics we've discussed or any other organic gardening conundrum, there's plenty of advice on our website at gardenorganic.org.uk. We always love to hear from you, so do get in touch with us via social media if you've any topics or questions you'd like us to cover. We're at Garden Organic UK on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Our thanks again to our sponsors, the Organic Gardening Catalogue, and to Kevin McLeod for providing the music. That's it. Until next month. 